Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today, we're here with a guest familiar to our audience, Dr. Jonathan Morrow. In fact, you are the first returning guest we've had in the show. Last time you came on and talked about Generation Z, and today we're going to talk about your book, Questioning the Bible, which I think hits right at the heart of the core of our faith. And I know a lot of our listeners have been caught flat-footed with tough questions about how we know the Bible is true, morally, uh, historical questions, scientific questions. So Dr. Morrow, to remind our audience, you're an adjunct professor at Talbot School of uh, Theology, and you also work with Impact 360, just a profound and very important ministry for young people. So thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, I'm honored to be here with you and excited to be the the first, you know, second time guest here. This is awesome. <laughs> well, let's jump right in. And before we get to some of the questions about the Bible, share with us a little bit of your story coming to Christ and a little bit of the crisis you had in terms of questions about the scripture. Yeah, absolutely. So didn't really grow up in a Christian home. I was, I was kind of baptized in the Catholic church. I was confirmed in the Episcopal church, but hadn't really heard the gospel till. Uh, really an acquaintance of mine who was praying for me. I was on his top five most wanted list. I was a junior in high school. Wow. It was uh, it was homecoming weekend, and I didn't have a date, which was typical, and his date was <laughs> grounded. And so I think, so we're having wings there in Knoxville, Tennessee, and, you know, asked me if I was a Christian and basically shared the gospel. The first time I ever remember hearing it, I was like, you know wow. what? Um, I've been searching for all these things, came from a broken home background, lots of different things, but it was the gospel made sense in that moment. And so I just – I. He asked if I wanted to pray in the restaurant. I said, no, that's strange. So I prayed later that night. And uh, and then immediately people began to mentor me and really heal some significant wounds just from my life growing up, but also finding purpose and having to know that God loved me and created me for that relationship was just amazing. But then I went off to college. So it was like that was my junior year. And then I began to start thinking through. Where'd you go to school, by the way? I went to Middle Tennessee State University. So large okay. state school, about 30,000 uh, students and just outside of Nashville. And had a really good experience, but I also thought, hey, you know what? I'm going to take a Bible is lit class. You know, what could possibly go wrong? I get, I get college credit and I get to study the Bible. But in the midst of this, it was interesting. My professor wasn't, she wasn't outright militant, just raised lots of questions that I had no idea about. You know, has the Bible been copied and corrupted over the years? Or there's all these lost gospels or it's kind of sexist or outdated or, you know, all these different questions, which I had no category for. And so it was one of those things. I was like, well, surely there's got to be answers to this stuff. And over the years, what I did is I began to investigate those questions and then kind of further questions. And eventually, uh, the fruit of that kind of search over the years of interacting with my own questions and doubts, but also other people, is what questioning the Bible became. So did you really question faith in the sense of what if I'm wrong? Or in the back of your mind, did you kind of know there is an answer if I just find it? I would probably lean towards this, that latter part where it's like, I think there is an answer. I just have to find it because I had already had some of those conversations around, you know, well, truth exists. That's it, not not relative and some other things. So I was hopeful, but I had no idea. I'd never heard these things growing up. I didn't know why you could trust the Bible or anything like that. So that was part of my journey in figuring out, hey, can can we really trust this? And uh, and that's kind of what I kind of went through during the college years and it was amazing what I found. It's like, hey, this actually is true. You can actually trust this. This really is the word of God. This is why apologetic training is so important for young people is they're going to hear challenges they haven't heard before when they get to college and beyond, sometimes earlier today because of the Internet. 
But if they have at least a little apologetic training and they're told that you're supposed to use your mind and Christianity is not anti-intellectual, then when these questions come up, there's at least a sense of, I know there's an answer if I'm willing to find it. And that's actually one of the first questions you deal with in the book. Is the Bible anti-intellectual? Yeah, you know, one of the first things and, you know, we, when you start interacting with people, they use the word faith and they're like, well, well, faith is kind of this blind leap and therefore the Bible's kind of, and Christianity's kind of fairy tales for grownups. And one of the things that I wanted to kind of explore in that chapter was, no, actually the Bible actually teaches that faith is active trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. When you look at Moses, for example, in, in Exodus, he's when he shows up, he actually shows the people of Israel how they'll know that Yahweh is the one true God over from Exodus 4 to 14. Or when you get to John the Baptist and he's talking, and he's sitting in a prison and he's wondering if Jesus really is the Messiah, the one whom he baptized, right? And yet Jesus gives him you know, go tell John what you've seen and heard. He gives them evidence and the kind of evidence that John the Baptist would have found persuasive. And Peter commanding us to be ready to defend our faith and give a reason and and so on and so forth. So we're called to love God with all of our minds. And we need to kind of kind of get rid of that kind of stereotype that Christians don't think hard or are not willing to think hard or there's no good intellectual reasons why we believe what we believe. And so that's kind of the first thing is you don't have to check your mind at the door or be irrational to read scripture. In fact, it requires a lot of you engaging your mind, which is a really important thing. Now, I can kind of guess the answer to this, but I want to hear you state it. Why? Tell me why you wrote the book, Questioning the Bible, in the first place. Was it for you to deepen your own understanding? Was it for students, for the church? Yeah, my passion really is helping the next generation and students understand what they believe, why they believe it, and how to live it out, and how to connect the dots. And at the end of that kind of series of questions is going to be a question of authority. Eventually, you're going to come to the who says so. And if the Bible is God's word then there are authoritative answers to life's biggest questions. And so I wanted to help students see that they could trust that God really has spoken. It's not outdated to think that. And so I wanted to put a resource that tries to synthesize kind of the best of scholarship that we've found in, in our generation and try to translate that for people to kind of go, okay, I can sink my my, my teeth into this and actually in, interact with this at a real level. And that's why I wrote it. I'd love to hear you say that it's a question of authority. I'm becoming more and more convinced that that's the heart of one of the most important issues with our students, especially on issues of sexuality. When our culture says it's your feelings and it's internal, the Christian worldview is no, there's authority in the character of God outside of us and freedom comes from conforming our lives to him. So you're right, it comes down to who or what do we consider authoritative. I couldn't agree more with that. Absolutely. Let me throw a second one out there. And here's here's what you write. You said... How do we know what the earliest Christians believed? There's a lot of confusion and debate. Maybe the resurrection was added on later. Mm-hmm. Maybe they didn't believe in the deity of Christ or the Trinity until centuries later. How do we know what the first Christians believed? This is a really important question. Whenever I teach students on this, I'm like, okay, whether or not you grew up in the church or not, I want you to kind of take off your church hat for a second and just put on your historian or your sociology of history kind of hat and say, why is there a thing called Christianity? And how would we know what the earliest Christians believed? And one of the really cool things, and, and, and different scholars have talked about this, Gary Habermas is one of them um, on this, but so there's these early creedal statements which um, show up. They're kind of the Bible before there was a Bible. There's these memory verses. It was a largely um, illiterate world, only about 10%-ish, depending upon the study of the ancient world during the first century, would have been literate. So they were communicating their theology through kind of these memory verses, if you will, before there was a Bible. And the most famous is 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about, 
at the core, there really never was a time when the earliest Christians didn't proclaim a bodily resurrection from of Jesus from the dead. And that goes all the way back to the beginning. And even scholars, skeptical scholars like Barton Ehrman will admit that within within a year or two for after the public execution of Jesus of Nazareth, you see that going on. So whatever you say about Christianity, if you're going to be intellectually honest and look at the history of it, is there never was a time when that earliest Christians who were predominantly Jewish came to believe that Jesus was the risen Son of God um, from the beginning. Like those beliefs are parallel from the beginning. And so I think that in and of itself helps us kind of get away from some of those arguments that this was evolutionary belief or they just kind of invented this stuff later. And I think historically speaking, we have, we're on very solid ground there. I did my dissertation on the fate of the apostles. Did they really die for their beliefs? So one of the things I had to establish was did they really believe Jesus was risen? And when I went back and read these creeds, the early church and the gospels, it blew me away how there is no early Christian belief apart from the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Read that. Read the speeches in Acts, yeah. and it's just filled with Jesus, the Son of God, who died and rose again. So like you said, there is no real debate that the earliest Christian beliefs have Jesus, God, who died and rose from the grave. So yeah. that's yeah, and you contrast that with the way that sometimes the gospel gets talked about today is more of a therapeutic and how it will fix your mm. life, whereas the early Christians really know this guy really rose from the dead. Not that it won't have impact on our lives, but I think recovering some of the centrality of that is really important. What about the lost gospels? I read the Da Vinci Code, Jonathan. Yes. I was told there's 88 <laughs> gospels. Now, I know that's fiction, and we can joke about that book. There were holes all over that. Mm-hmm. But that's a serious question that I hear somewhat frequently when I speak on this. How would you address that? Yeah, so so back back in, in about 1945, there was discovery in Nakamata, Egypt. And so they discovered different um, codices, which included different lost gospels and different manuscripts. And some of those, um, probably the most famous one was like Gospel of Thomas, there's one um, gospel of truth. You know, there's different ones. There's even a gospel of Judas. Who knew Judas had a gospel, right? <laughs> and that one, he turns out to be the hero who kind of helps Jesus be set free um, through the crucifixion, and things like that. So all that to say is there's these competing claims. And so the question is, has the church been covering these things up for 2,000 years? Or did they reject them for very good reasons? And when you go back to it, one of the first things you need to recognize is that the earliest Christians were predominantly Jewish. What does that mean? That means they were monotheistic. They believed mm-hmm. in one God, and they believed creation was good. So from the beginning, along with that belief in the resurrection, is they had that core theology, which meant that anytime Gnosticism shows up at about one, you know, into the second century, into the third century, where it says creation is actually a bad thing, and it was this demiurge that created stuff, and that's really what's going on, and, and the physical is bad, and the spirit's good. It'd be like oil and water. It would have not taken hold because earliest Christianity believed that in one God. It believed in, you know, that the body was good and creation was good. So core beliefs like that, among other things, as well as transferring these beliefs. Like there's this early hymn, um, Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11, this amazing mm-hmm. hymn, where at the end of that, um, Paul describes that the name of Jesus every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. What's amazing is, and that was written in the early 60s, and even, you know, Bart Ehrman and others will grant you that, um, but he's quoting Isaiah 45, 23, which says, at the name of Yahweh, every tongue will f- confess and every knee will bow. So they're singing hymns. They're singing their theology to Christ as if a God very early on. So these core beliefs 
started early. And when you compare them to these other Gnostic or lost gospels, it's like taking oil and water and mixing them up. It's like for a second, they might look like, oh, there's the same thing. You just give a little time. And over the second and third centuries, it was very clear that those began to emerge, um, that those were not uh, what the earliest Christians believed, therefore not authoritative. They weren't cited as such. Um, the early church fathers didn't cite them with the same authority. Even the, the artifacts we have discovered, you never see the Gospel of Thomas joined to the Gospel of mm-hmm. Matthew, even in the physical manuscripts that we've discovered and things like that. So there's lots of good reasons that just because these existed and there was diversity, it doesn't mean that no one knew what Christianity was. It was that there were conversations about these things, and they were known. They were just rejected because they weren't written by the apostles, they weren't written in the first century, they, or they were clearly forgeries or other reasons like that. So it sounds like there's theological issues, different things that are taught in Thomas and Judas and Gospel mm-hmm. Mary, and also chronologically, all these Gospels mm-hmm. are minimally written in the early to mid-second century. All four Gospels, even on critical dating, are the mid to the end of the first century. Yeah, absolutely. What about the claim that the Bible is sexist? We hear that a lot today. It's anti-women. Yeah, you know, that's what's interesting about this is, is in some ways the church is kind of the victim of her own success in this. Because when the first century came around and when Jesus introduced things like this, you know, you will know us by our love for one another. And then Paul begins to contextualize that in Ephesians where it says, okay, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. We hear that and we go, of course. In the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, that was revolutionary. And what you see is that completely turned things upside down in that world because Jesus is very good news for women. In fact, Paul co-labored with lots of women that, that helped, you know, with house churches and everything else. We see it in the book of Acts. We see women who are flocking really in many ways to the early church because they were dignified. They were all those things are core beliefs that we're, we're now in the 21st century. It's kind of that's that's an assumption. But that. That doesn't come from anywhere else in in the history of these ideas. That comes from the Judeo-Christian worldview. Now, have there been abuses? Absolutely, there has been. Are there confusing passages in your Old Testament? Yeah, and one of the ways you kind of think about this, whether it's the sexist issue or the genocide issue or whatever objection is raised, there's only about four chapters in your Bible that describe things the way they're supposed to be. Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation Mm -hmm. 21 through 22. Everything else in the middle is a mess. It's not the way things are supposed to be. So it's God working redemptively through people who would be just like everybody else. Israel would have been just like everybody else if God had not intervened through them and began working through them and gave them laws and things that actually started to put in place some minimal protections of women, for example, if they were supposed to marry in these certain reasons. So again, that's not God's ideal. God's ideal is Genesis 1 and 2, made in the image of God, male and female created them. But we see that story unfolding where God is working redemptively through people. So the Bible is not sexist. We need to read it in a, in a way that's contextually and understands context. But in fact, the Bible gives us some remarkably revolutionary ideas that we now think are normal. But those come directly from Jesus dignifying women, the early church dignifying women. One of the questions I like to ask people is I'll say, look, of all the religious founders in history, who would you trust your daughter with for a day? And just go down the religious figures. I don't even have to mention them. You come to hmm. Jesus, he had every opportunity to take advantage of women and show nothing but dignity and compassion and care and respect. Hmm. And he is the culmination of the Christian worldview. So great answer. What about this one is clearly hard. And I, I know you can't fully unpack this. We could do 
multiple shows on this, but I hear this somewhat frequently in conversations with atheists and skeptics. What about the Bible being genocidal? Yeah. So here's so this is a this is a charge that's brought up, and the challenge of this, and the honest challenge is, it can be brought up in like a thirty second slogan, but it takes time to respond to it because mm-hmm. it involves context. Um, so the f- a couple of things I would say at the slogan level, if I was just going to respond at the thirty second level, it would simply be. The Bible isn't about, or the conquest narratives, particularly with Joshua and those other passages, is not about genocide. It's about judgment. That's kind of the simplest way to put it, because God was judging them. He had given them 400 years, Genesis 15, for being very wicked. They practiced, um, the Canaanites practiced, you know, uh, bestiality. They practiced child sacrifice. It was a very fallen culture. And here's how I know it wasn't genocidal. Because God judged Israel as severely or more severely for their wickedness later on as well through the Assyrians, and God judged them in 722 B.C. He judged them with the Babylonians in 605 to 586 B.C. So again, God judged them for sin because sometimes we don't take sin as seriously as God does. That's part of the problem. Second, the ancient Near Eastern world was was not diplomacy over high tea. It was a very warfare kill or be killed type world, and that was where Israel was at. You also have the promise of the Messiah that was supposed to come through mm-hmm. Israel that, that God was going to protect um, as well as Satan would probably try to defeat as well as that unfolding because God promised that Abraham and his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations. Well, that doesn't happen if you don't have a Messiah or distinct people Israel that kind of is erased by mixing in with, with the Canaanites and everything else. So is it a hard thing? Yes. Are there lots of questions around it? Scholars kind of debate, okay, well, what's going on in the particulars? Were they fortified cities where only the men would have been left and the rest would have had time to flee? Or were women and children killed as well? I mean, there's some challenging um, um, you know, details around that. But at the end of the day, it was about judgment, not genocide. Um, and as well as things aren't the way they're supposed to be. It was unique. It was not repeatable. It's not normalized in Scripture. Um, it was very limited historically when you look in the context as well. So those are a few of the things, and I unpack some of the different things in ways we can look at that. But part of it is just at the at the at the very root of it is the world is not the way it's supposed to be, mm. and and war was not God's ideal in that situation in the beginning. But again, God is working out this redemptive plan through free human people, and in that case, Israel was a theocracy; God was their king, and so they were they would have been acting morally under His authority. And while it's not as emotionally satisfying as we might like, is does God have the authority to do with his creation what he will? If he's the author and creator of it, can he take life? Absolutely. Whereas you and I don't have that right because we're not the author and creator of life. So there are some rational things. Is it emotionally hard? Sure. But we have to take the time to read through it contextually and kind of see what's going on there to really best understand it. I think that's really helpful. To me, that's one of the hardest questions to address because it's so emotion-filled. It requires theological, cultural moral issues at play. And sometimes we don't have the patience to really unpack that. I was in a debate with an atheist one time and he raised the problem of evil. Why does God allow evil? The very next question was about genocide. And I said, wait a minute. And one, you're saying God doesn't act and stop evil. Mm -hmm. Now you're upset that he stops and judges evil. You can't have it both (laughs) ways. And he had honestly never really thought about that. Again, that doesn't answer why, Mm -hmm. but sometimes helps gives us a little perspective. I've also thought it's interesting that Rahab, that God gives an Mm -hmm. out to Rahab, who had heard these stories to anybody who understood and feared. So that's just another example. There's so much more going on when we probe more deeply in this. What about the claim 
that the Bible, this is perhaps one of the most common ones, especially in the research you did on Gen Z. It shows that this conflict or apparent conflict between science and scripture turns a lot of young people away. So is the Bible unscientific? Yeah, great question. And I think students especially love asking this question because we're growing up in a, in a culture that loves science, which is great. Science um, came to fruition out of a Judeo-Christian worldview, right? The, the, the rational search, the investigation of the rational world that laws require lawgivers, things like that. So a couple thoughts. One, this is the first question is if it's at least possible, because it's really the question of miracles and can God act in the, in the world beyond the natural, the physical. If it's at least possible that God exists, then miracles become possible, and then we can investigate them on a case-by-case basis, like the resurrection. So we have good reason to think that beginnings require beginners from the origin of the universe. We know the universe began to exist a finite point in the past. That design requires a designer through DNA, through fine-tuning, and things like that. And then the moral law requires a moral law giver. So I think we have good independent reasons that at least make, at least make belief in God possible. Then it's the question, well, I've never seen a miracle. Well, if God can speak the universe into existence, and that's consistent with the modern scientific picture that we see, and it is, then miracles don't seem quite as outrageous. And then usually the questions come to particular claims the Bible makes. Well, which reading of Genesis is correct? How should we best interpret these kind of things? And so there, um, the, way I, the way I typically lay this framework out is at the top is the question of naturalism versus theism. Um, does God exist or is, or is all that exists physics, chemistry, genetics, and biology? If naturalism is true, then Darwinian evolution is the only game in town, like if you draw an arrow down from it. But if theism is possibly true, then intelligent design is opposite of Darwinian evolution. And that's the place to have the discussion about the evidence, cause and effect. They both use philosophy. They both use science. And then the third question underneath intelligent design is well, what kind of designer how did God create? That's the doctrine of creation, which is different than the question of intelligent design and Darwinian evolution, because the doctrine of creation is revealed from Scripture, and then we go out in the world and we walk around, is this what I see? Is this fit? And guess what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I see a fit with that. Heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. And then the question is, that God created is logically prior and more important than how God created, especially for our culture, because they don't understand that distinction yet. They're still hung up on the that God created part. And then you come to your best conclusions about, okay, well, how do we best understand the early chapters of Genesis? Were they calendar days? Or was it um, kind of, or ages and period of time? Or was it set up like an analogy, like a work week or something like that? All of which people hold to inerrancy and everything else, that's hold right. those views, yeah. right? That's not, and so, so that's kind of the way I try to paint that for students to say, okay, now you're free, explore, think, grow, and, and see what you come to think is true. But that's kind of a framework that helps you deal with a lot of those scientific challenges. So you've got to unpack it scientifically and biblically and, and theologically. Yeah. When I was talking with my students, speaking of miracles, these are the Talbot students just a few weeks ago. And we're talking about Craig Keener's study, mm. two-volume, yeah. massive, careful study. He says there's hundreds of millions of living Christians who believe they've seen or experienced miracles. He goes, fine, I'll be conservative. Tens of millions, mm -hmm. and some are documented than others, but such a range of miracles that he says the bottom line is we can't with any scholarly responsibility investigate the natural world and assume that miracles don't happen. I opened this up to my students, and I had students in class sharing mm. powerful miracles, and I found this in groups. I'd invite our listeners. If you ever speak in or in a group, just ask people, 
How many of you have seen or witnessed a miracle? And I don't mean getting a parking spot at the right time at Christmas. <laughs> and it's amazing how many Christians aren't trying to get fame or draw attention to themselves, but say, I have seen stuff that can only be explained by a miracle, which helps answer this question about the Bible and science. Let me ask you one more question, maybe two, but at least one more. That's kind of the elephant in the room today. Is the Bible homophobic? Is the Bible hateful towards people with same-sex attraction? How would you address that? Yeah, it's actually interesting. Here's a, one of the things that I do, and I work with Impact 360, and I'll ask students their questions, and they'll get to write them on the wall. We have writable walls, which is so fun. They'll write all their questions on the walls. And one of them was, um, why does God care about sexuality? One of the students wrote on the wall. And so in the Q&A time, I said, the reason why God cares about sexuality is because he cares about you. And if God created you and loves you and has a plan that you flourish best within, then then God is loving by speaking on that. And so we see God's ideal, and then we see the departure from that. See, we live in a fallen, broken world where all of us are broken. We just express our brokenness in different ways. And one of the ways that happens sexually is through either same-sex relationships or same-sex attraction or whether it's pornography or adultery or premarital sex. There's all sorts of different ways to deviate from God's good design. So God's word is not homophobic. God loves all people. They're made in his image, but all are called to repent. And all are welcome. Um, all are called to, um, you know, the gospel's good news for everybody, and all are called to repent, Christians and everybody else. I mean, so it's like you see when you read these passages in context and we see the vision in God's heart, when he says flee sexual immorality, it's because he sees things that we don't see. It's like when you see a little, it's like your little child and they're about to run out in the road to chase the ball. All they can see is the ball. But God's, it's like the parents like, no, but I see the traffic. And when God tells us to flee these things that aren't best for us, he sees things we don't see. And that's the full context of what's going on in the vision of how scripture deals with those prohibitions because God wants us to say yes to what is best for those things. We don't flourish in light of that. So that's kind of the big overarching way I typically answer that. And then we get into particulars about, you know, would Jesus, the most loving person who ever lived, um, support um, homosexual behavior? And we can look at, say, Matthew 19 and passages that show his heart for reaffirming God's creational good norm of, of a man and a woman for a lifetime in marriage. That's God's ideal. And so um, so I think those are a couple things we can say. I go into more detail in the book, but those are a couple things to kind of frame that conversation. I appreciate, I appreciate that you frame it with both grace and relationship and care for people and how all of our desires that are not aligning mm -hmm. with God's design for us stem from some kind of brokenness that we have. And that's true for all of us. What do you do when you come across a tough question you don't immediately have the answer to? Like emotionally and practically, how do you deal with that? <laughs> yeah, emotionally, it's like, oh. Okay. Well, depending upon the environment, like if you're on stage, I mean, you're like, well, they're expecting an answer here. So I try to, I try to frame it, but then if it's more of just I'm in research or reading, I'll, I'll kind of go, okay, well, I'll kind of have a quick check with myself and go, okay, when I've explored tough questions before, there are reasonable alternatives out there. I've not encountered this objection before, this way of thinking about it or whatever it might be. And so let me do some thinking about that. Let me get clear about what the claim is and let me evaluate to see if it's a good claim or not, what the evidence says. So that's kind of, if I have more time, that's how I approach it. In the moment, if I don't know, I'll say, you know, that's a great question. I don't know. I'll have to think about that more and get back to you if it's something like that. Uh, but if it's something, 
in, in, in the ballpark of something I have thought about, I typically try to frame those with a bigger and then say, hey, you know, some of these details we can kind of explore further as we have more time. And that's kind of how I kind of navigate that. When I was an undergrad, I was going through kind of a period of doubt, and I went in and talked with J.P. Moreland, one of our, our colleagues mm-hmm. and uh, beloved professors who influenced yeah. both of us. And he said to me, he goes, you know, I he- rarely hear new objections to the faith. I know there's an answer. And as undergrad, I was like, man, that must be nice <laughs> to be there. Well, I do hear new objections, but not that yeah. often the more I do this. Mm-hmm. And there's just a confidence if I'm willing to do the research there's more often than not a reasonable explanation for why this happens. And I think that's what you do really well in your book is you don't pretend to explain all the tough answers about the Bible, but you take the biggest ones, most or many of which we've addressed here and some others like, does the Bible have contradictions? Has it been corrupted over time, et cetera? And just at about 10 to 12, 15 pages, respond to each one in a real practical, usable way. So I hope our Listeners will go pick up a copy of Questioning the Bible by Dr. Jonathan Morrow. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Sean. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Jonathan Morrow, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.